My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you today. Thank you for gathering with us. And as the uh, baskets are making their way around the room, just want to remind you that uh, we are starting a new Wednesday night equipped class this week. It's called Reformation Theology After Darkness Light. Uh, I'll be leading that time. We're going to be thinking together for five weeks about the theology of the Reformation on this, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And so we'd love to have you come uh, think along with us. It's going to be at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday night, Gallery 14, right next door. So if you're planning on coming, sign up, let us know, or just show up. That's totally fine, too. Uh, We'll have a good time uh, thinking theologically together. For now, I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to John. We have spent most of 2017 and have plans to continue uh, into the new year and beyond uh, staring at, gazing at, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, his account of the life and the work of Jesus of Nazareth, and what a blessing it's been, what a joy it's been to see who Jesus is and what he's done for us in this book, and by God's grace, Lord willing, we will uh, continue that work today, studying together in John chapter 6. So if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in John chapter 6. I'll begin reading in verse 16. And read through verse 21. John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is God's word. Surely the grass withers and the flower fades, but not the word of God. No, the word of God endures forever. And the one who has ears to hear, let them hear it. Amen. Please take your seats. When I was, I think, 11 years old, I had a chance to do something that I was very excited about, and that is to go on a fishing trip into the Gulf of Mexico. I stayed the night at my friend's house. We got up early, super early, and we ate some donuts, and we hightailed it down to the coast and got into uh, the speedboat. Uh, it felt like a speedboat. I'm sure it wasn't all that fast. Uh, and we went out into the water for what was supposed to be a day of glorious uh, fishing. And, you know, I don't know what you catch in the Gulf. I didn't personally catch anything. And here's why. I found out very quickly, like as soon as we had shoved off into the Gulf, that uh, when Josh is in a situation where he's moving around a lot, like in the water, I, get, I have this reaction to that. I get very sick, okay? I got seasick really fast. And so while everybody else was having a good time fishing, catching things, I don't know if they caught anything or not, I was sitting as still as I possibly could, breathing deeply and trying not to revisit that morning's donuts, uh, doing my very best to just sort of get through. And so we did that for a little while. And then to, uh, you can imagine both the uh, horror and delight I experienced when I saw that there was a, a very serious storm making its way toward us. I was, I was delighted because that meant we got to go back to the land. 
where I was safe and not about to lose it everywhere. I was a little bit terrified, though, too, because this was a serious gulf disturbance and it was moving toward us. Fortunately, the boat we were in was fast, I suppose. Again, I know nothing about boats. But we got back to the land. We were able to beat it back to the shore before we got caught up in the storm. But I learned from that experience, 11-year-old Josh learned a valuable lesson, and that's this. The sea wants to kill you. (laughs) That's what it's there for. That's what it wants. And you just, you enter into that situation, that arrangement at your own risk. That's the deal the sea has with you. You can come out on me if you want. I'm probably going to kill you. So just be mindful of that. That, uh, that conclusion that I came to has only been reinforced by being a homeowner uh, in close proximity to the Gulf Coast of Florida the last little bit. You know, big body of water plus wind plus low pressure equals terror and disaster. And, uh, you know, that's all just part of it. It's all part of, of life dealing with the sea and the wind and the waves. And this morning we come to a very well-known and very well-loved story in John's Gospel. Jesus is going to send his disciples into their own experience of the terror of the storm. And he's going to do that in order to bring about his good purposes in them. Before we get to that, let me just catch you up to speed on where we've been. In uh, the verses just previous to this, Jesus has performed a miracle. It's a very significant miracle. It's the feeding of, it's known as the feeding of the 5,000, but it's really more the feeding of the 20,000. It's 5,000 men, probably 20,000 men, women, and children. Jesus has fed this entire crowd of people from a little boy's lunchable. Uh, So bountiful was Jesus' provision that after they were finished eating, there were 12 baskets of loaves and fish left over. And this really represents, this miracle is so significant, it's recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. And it also represents really the high point of Jesus' public popularity. Jesus' stock is never hotter in the Gospels than it is after he's fed the multitudes. So popular is Jesus at this point, it says in verse 15 that Jesus is aware that the crowds are deciding they want to take him by force and make him their king. But Jesus didn't come to be taken by force and made a king. That's not what he came to do. He came to deal with sin, not to be the bread and fish provider. He didn't come to be a a political leader. He came to be the Savior of His people, and so He withdraws from that place. He leaves, and He sends His disciples out onto the sea, and He Himself withdraws up to the mountain by Himself, as is His custom. And this is the stage, the scene that's set for us, that John unfolds for us. And this account of Jesus walking on the water comes right after the feeding of the multitudes in John's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, and in Mark's gospel. John gives a pretty bare telling of this account, so we're going to flesh this out with a little bit of help from Matthew and Mark's accounts, which are found in Matthew 14 and Mark chapter 6. But here's what we're going to see. Here's the big idea that we're going to drive toward this morning. Jesus sends his disciples into the storm to form in them a faith that endures. Jesus sends his disciples into the storm to form in them a faith that endures. We're going to talk briefly about the storm itself, and then we're going to talk about where Jesus is in the storm. That's where we're going. So the scene is set before us. The disciples are on the water. These men are experienced fishermen. Most of them are, uh, that's their vocation. They are fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. 
They're headed back toward Capernaum, and it says in verse 18 that Jesus had not yet come to them. And it's in this setting that things begin to go wrong. The Sea of Galilee, you may know this, it sits about 600 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by hills and mountains. And what will happen is the uh, strong winds will come down the mountain with great force and will stir up the water. And in the Sea of Galilee, even to this day, storms uh, tend to to gather, organize, and, and attack very fiercely, very ferociously, and very quickly without, uh, without being seen or expected. And so the disciples find themselves in the midst of a great storm and a dangerous storm. It's nighttime. This is not, this is not a, a modern setting where there's light pollution from the city and you can sort of see what's going on around you. It was most likely very, very dark. They're in a wooden boat. There's no motor. The seas are choppy and rough. It says they had rowed three to four miles. It says in the other accounts that Jesus actually comes to them in the fourth watch of the night, which would have been between 3 and 6 a.m. The disciples, by extrapolating that information, we can see they've been rowing for about eight hours on the Sea of Galilee in the storm. Mark's account says they were making headway painfully. It's a dire situation, impossible. It's wearying. It's dangerous. The disciples are pressed beyond their means, beyond the resources that they have. Many of you hear that and you say, you know what? That sounds a lot like my life right now. That sounds a lot like the address that I'm living at. Because this is what life is so often like in a fallen world, a world that's groaning and crying out for redemption. It can feel like this. We often enter into the storm in life in a fallen world. Now, we need to be careful here. We need to be careful. We can't just go willy-nilly inserting ourselves into Bible stories, right? And giving ourselves like a role in it. You can end up getting in a lot of trouble interpretively if you just immediately put yourself into a story and assign yourself the role of one of the characters. And so this is the way we often do this, right? We read the story of David and Goliath and we say, okay, cool, I get what this is about. It's an allegory. I'm David, Goliath is my problem, and I overcome and I I deal with my problem with the resources God gives me. And so this becomes something like, I'm David, Goliath is my struggle against, you know, sexual lust or whatever, and the five smooth stones that I pick up are like my internet filtering software, my accountability group, daily devotions, Sunday worship, and something else. And I'm able to overcome the giant and cut his head off because God helps me. Is that the point of that story? No, that's not the point of that story. The right way to sort of position yourself in the story is to see Jesus as the true and better David who comes on your behalf and fights the enemies that you can't defeat for you. And you're the terrified Israelite cowering on the sidelines, asking God to come and work in your situation. So we have to be careful about how we do this. And yet, at the same time, I think there's good reason for us to see our storms in the disciples' storm. And here's why. If you take even a cursory glance at the Hebrew storytelling tradition, Hebrew literature, Hebrew poetry that the Bible writers were steeped in, you see that the storm, the sea, is a symbol. It's a common symbol that's employed to represent all that is ominous and sinister and threatening in the world. It represents the chaos of life in a world under the curse of sin. Life has terrifying 
unpredictable forces that can very suddenly put you in great danger. That's what the sea and the storm symbolize for us in the Bible's literature. Storms are inevitable for everyone. Everyone, if you live long enough, will find themselves in a storm, even Christians. In John 16, right before he goes to the cross, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, in this world you will have tribulation unless you have enough faith, unless you pray enough, unless you give enough to the church, right? Is that what Jesus says? No, he says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You're going to enter into storms. It's going to happen. You're going to receive that dreaded diagnosis. You're going to hear that crushing disclosure, that discovered adultery, that child who goes rogue and goes prodigal. It's going to happen. It's happening in our church right now. This week I had a chance, this, just this week, I spoke to a man, a dear brother who lost his brother to a drug overdose, a woman who has an adult child who is shipwrecking their life with the choices that they're making, a man who is seeking to care for his wife who has a degenerative mental illness that is incapacitating her. This week we gathered for the funeral, the memorial service of Robert Wills. Our sister Jane is en route now to take him home to his hometown of Missouri to bury him. We experience storms in this life. It is inevitable. And it's worth noting, there are two, there are two reasons we end up in the storm. There's two, two realities that can deliver us into the storm. One is our disobedience. Sometimes we end up in the storm because we've disobeyed the Lord. We see this in the story, this pictured really perfectly in the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. God speaks to the prophet Jonah and he says, go to Nineveh and proclaim the message that I've given to you. And Jonah says, okay, Nineveh's that way. I'm going to Tarshish, which is this way. And I'm going to run as fast and as far as I can possibly go to get away from this assignment that God's given me. And God sends a literal storm that puts Jonah in the belly of a great fish to draw him to repentance, to point out his need to come before the Lord and confess his sin. I heard the story not long ago of a, a man who had a very significant and very public Christian ministry that was destroyed and exploded by his long-concealed, ongoing, adulterous relationship. And he was reflecting on how God broke him of his pride and the way that he used a storm to bring that about, he said that I felt like I was watching a panoramic movie of my entire life burning to the ground as I stood back holding the match that set the fire. In his love, God will come to you in your disobedience, in your rebellion. And he will send you into the storm to show you your need for him, to invite you into repentance and lead you into life. But sometimes we end up in the storm for other reasons. Sometimes we end up in the storm because of our obedience. Think about the prophet Jeremiah. God comes to Jeremiah and he says, go deliver my message to my people who are in exile. And nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to hear Jeremiah's message. He goes on proclaiming it and eventually the 
the, the priest, Pasher, beats Jeremiah publicly and puts him in the stocks. Jeremiah is made a disgrace, a laughing stock, to the point where he cries out to God and says, You have seduced me, and I was seduced by one stronger than I. Richard Wormbrand was a Romanian pastor who was imprisoned for speaking against communism and the state control of churches in Eastern Europe in the mid-20th century. He spent 13 years in an underground cell that had no light and no windows. He was beaten. He was tortured. They beat him so badly on the bottoms of his feet that the flesh was torn off the soles of his feet. They would continue to beat him mercilessly in that spot each day. He was burned. He was locked in an icebox. In order to make it through, Wormbrand would sleep during the day, and then at night he would compose and deliver sermons alone in his cell. All for standing against the forces of evil in his country and standing for the truth. How did the disciples end up in this storm? This is really important. John, again, gives us a bare telling of this event, but in Matthew chapter 14, we read this. Immediately he, that's Jesus, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. The picture here is he compelled them to do something they didn't want to do. We're supposed to see the disciples sort of kind of looking at each other with a raised eyebrow as Jesus puts his foot on the bow of the ship and sort of kicks it out into the Sea of Galilee. Jesus sends his disciples into the storm. They end up in this storm, eight hours rowing, tedious, small progress, great danger because of obedience to Jesus, because of doing what he said. And, you know, we, we, are, we seek to be biblical Christians. We seek to take the Bible at his word. We seek to believe Jesus when he says, in this world you will have tribulation. And then we hear prosperity teachers We hear people like T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen and others saying things like, if you just believe enough, if you just have enough faith, you're not going to suffer anymore. You won't be poor anymore. Your illnesses will be healed. And if you're suffering, it's because you lack faith. And in our hearts we say, that is not right. That does not accord with what the Bible teaches. That's heaven. That's not here. That's not life in a fallen world. And yet, even though we believe that, There are times when we end up in the storm and we say, Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, why am I here? Even though we know it's not true, there's there's little subtle places in our hearts that believe, if I do what's right, God will bless me and he'll keep me out of trouble. He'll keep me out of the storm. And when the storm comes, we're perplexed and we say, Jesus, what are you doing in this? And it's into this storm and into this very question that Jesus literally steps in to provide an answer. And he steps in with a miracle. He actually walks on the water. I need to say just, let me say one thing about this miracle briefly as an aside. There's a lot of uh, liberal scholars who will read this and they'll say, well, clearly either like there were some raised stones, there was like a sandbar kind of situation, Jesus isn't literally walking on the water. Or... Um, it's just a metaphor. Jesus, they felt Jesus was with them, and then they made it to the other side of the storm. That's not what we believe. We believe 
that there are real, miraculous things that take place. And you need to understand this. Christianity is based on what C.S. Lewis called the grand miracle. The foundation of our faith is the miracle of the incarnation, that Jesus came down from heaven, took on human form, walked among us, lived a perfect life for us, and went to the cross as our substitute and died for us. And it's built on the fact that after three days in the ground in the tomb, Jesus was raised from the dead, and he lives now. These are miraculous things we believe, and they form the core of what we believe as Christians. So if you, if you look askance at the miracles in God's Word, there is no reason for you to accept any of it. There's no reason to accept any of it. It is our conviction, our belief that God governs His world according to the laws of the universe most of the time. The normal patterns of life would be that you step on the water, your foot is going to go down until it hits something firm. Yet, but, however, at the same time, the Lord is the Lord of all. Romans eleven thirty six says, For from Him, through Him, and for Him are all things, including the water, including the laws of nature. And God is free at any time for the sake of His purposes to set aside the natural laws in order to accomplish His purposes. So the way I've heard this described is it's a little bit like the laws of traffic. The laws of nature are like the laws of traffic. So just pretend for a minute that we all obey the laws of traffic, right? You come to a red light, you stop. You stay in your lane, theoretically, on the road, right? But there are times when, and when there's an emergency, an ambulance is empowered with the authority to drive up on the shoulder, to drive through the red light in order to accomplish a greater purpose. And in the same way, in the same way, there are times when God sets aside the rules of natural law to, to drive past you on the shoulder at a high rate of speed in order to help someone in an unusual way. He is fully free to do that, and he does that. We believe he does that today. And that's what he does for his disciples. Verse 19 says, He was walking on the sea, coming toward them. And this miracle that Jesus performs really shows us, I think, at least three things that Jesus is doing in the storm. So the question is, what is Jesus doing in your storm? I think from the text, there's at least three things. First, Jesus is moving toward you. He's not moving away from you. He's not forsaking you. He's not neglecting you. He's actually moving toward you. They saw him walking on the sea coming near the boat. When you find yourself in the storm, regardless of what delivered you to that storm, God is moving toward you. He is moving toward you in order to unfold His gracious purposes in your life. If you're in the sea because of your sin, He's moving toward you in order to call you to repentance, to show you the life that's found in Him and Him alone, to show you the foolishness of persisting in your sin and in your rebellion, inviting you to take hold of that which is truly life in Him. If you're in the storm because of your obedience to Him, He's coming to minister faith to your soul, to deepen your fellowship with Him, to share with you the fellowship of His sufferings, which is so often the sweetest fellowship we experience as Christians. You know, it's very interesting. In, in Mark chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is involved with the disciples in another storm, isn't He? Jesus, in this time, is already in the boat. He's down there asleep. 
And the disciples are losing their minds in the storm. They're saying, have you forgotten about us? We're going to die up here, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He comes up to the deck. He says, peace, be still. He says, quiet you. And the storm stops. So here's a question for you. Why didn't Jesus do that here? Jesus could have stood on the shore and said, peace, be still. He could have stayed on the mountain and said, peace, be still. But he doesn't do that. He moves toward the disciples so that they can see him. He moves toward them with grace. It was better for the disciples, for these 12 frightened fishermen, to see him coming toward them than to simply have him calm the storm. Because it's not just about calming the storm. It's about their faith. That's what Jesus is doing in this story. What does Psalm 46 say? It says, God is our refuge and our strength. A what? A very present help in our time of need. He is a very present help in time of need. God is the deliverer who moves toward us with the timely grace of his presence. And it's not always when we want, is it? It's not always when we want it, but it's always when we need it. I'm sure the disciples would have loved for him to come during like maybe the second watch of the night and not the fourth. But as I've heard it said, I love this. I don't know where this originated, but the Lord is rarely early, but he's never late. Amen? There's a story in our family that I love that my dad has told me several times. Back in the late 70s, before I had come on the scene, my parents had been Christians for just a little over a year, and the times were, they were pretty lean financially. And they had a little baby, my sister, and they were really kind of scratching and clawing, trying to make ends meet. And my grandparents had arranged for my mom and my sister to go down to visit them. They had provided a way for them to be able to do that. And my dad found himself on a Sunday morning sitting in church as a pretty new Christian with very little in the pantry and a $5 bill in his pocket in a week that he needed to survive on. And as the service was unfolding, the pastor administered the time of the offering. And as my dad was sitting in his seat, he felt compelled by the Lord. He felt the Lord saying to him, David, it's time to empty your pockets. And so as the baskets went around, he put a trembling hand into his pocket, took out that $5 bill that was his food money for the week and dropped it in the offering basket. And he said, I I was terrified. I didn't know what that was going to mean or what that was going to represent for me, but I felt like the Lord wanted me to do it, and so I did it. And you know, he had not gotten to the door after the service was over before someone had invited him to lunch that day, and three people had invited him over to their homes for dinner that week. He said, I ate better that week than I had in months. And he said, as a new Christian, that was such a profound shaping experience for me and my faith. My parents would always say to us in difficult times, when life was uncertain, when it was hard, as God has always provided for us. He has always provided for us. He has always given us what we've needed. He has always moved toward us with the timely grace of his presence and his provision. He has always been a very present help in our time of need. The Lord is rarely early, but he's never late. And in your storm, he is moving toward you with his timely 
grace, the grace of His presence. So He's moving toward you. Second, He's revealing Himself to you. He's revealing Himself to you. At this point, the disciples, they are terrified and they are exhausted. And when they see the Lord moving toward them, it says they were terrified. They're more afraid to see Jesus walking toward them on the water than they were when they just felt like they were going to die because of the waves. And Jesus opens his mouth and he speaks to them. And our, our Bibles translate it, it is I. That's a fine translation. But what he says in the Greek, it's ego me. And everywhere else you see them, that in the New Testament, you know how they translate that? I am. Jesus takes for himself the divine name, the name that God gave Moses when he spoke to him out of the burning bush in Exodus 3. He pulls back the curtain to reveal that he is God. He is Yahweh in the flesh, standing before them on the water. I am. I am the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, the one in whom every covenant promise rests. He shows his disciples, I'm not the good teacher who has the power to perform a few signs. I'm not, that's not who I am. I'm not the, the teacher with the superpowers. I'm not the divine spark. I'm not the force. I'm God in the flesh standing before you. That's why the disciples, when they see him, they're terrified. Deity is moving toward them, and they see it, and they understand who he is. But this is so beautiful. He doesn't just say, I am. He says, I am. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This is so beautiful and so profound, because if I am is present with you. There's nothing for you to fear. The storm that you're in may be powerful, but I am is more powerful. There's something more powerful that's present to you in your storm. You know, sometimes it takes the storm to give us eyes to see God for who he really is. You know, we, we, are, we are a wealthy people, we have everything that we need so often. And so often that can be such a barrier to us, really seeing how much we need the Lord. You may have heard, heard it said before, you, you don't know the Lord is all you need until the Lord is all you have. And sometimes the Lord takes us into the storm so that we will see that he is all we need because he is all we have. He says, I am. Do not be afraid. In your storm, Jesus is revealing himself to you. Third, in your storm, Jesus is reigning sovereignly as Lord. The fact that Jesus is walking on the water, the fact that he's demonstrating his power in such a miraculous way, it's a sign of his absolute authority over everything that's terrifying. The moment his foot meets the boat, notice this, they're safe. Immediately they arrive at the destination they're moving toward. This miracle is a definitive demonstration that there's nothing that's outside of his authority. There's nothing that's beyond his control. He is the Lord of all who reigns over his creation with sovereign power. I want us to see this too. John Frame, who's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, says that you can think about God's lordship, the way that God exercises his lordship, by thinking about three attributes, three attributes of his lordship, 
authority, control, and presence. Authority, control, and presence. God has authority because he has the right to claim our allegiance and our full obedience. And he has the right to assert his divine will over everything that exists. He doesn't just have authority, though. He has control. There's nothing that escapes his notice. And there's nothing that happens apart from either his active initiation or his passive allowance. Everything that comes to us comes to us through his hand. It passes through his hand. Even your storms are father-filtered. But it's not just authority and it's not just control. It's also his presence He's the God who is with us, the God who comes near, the one who's near to the brokenhearted, who saves the crushed in spirit, the one who comes to a bruised reed and says, I'm not going to break that. The one who comes to you when you're a smoldering wick and says, I will not snuff you out. He has full authority. He has full control, but he is also present to us as Lord. And he is the God who shows up to minister his presence to us in the midst of our storm. Authority, control, and presence. All three perfectly held together. Or you can think of it as Jerry Bridges says, God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. In your storm, Jesus is moving toward you He's revealing himself to you and he is reigning sovereignly as Lord. That's what he's doing in your storm. So let me just very practically, briefly, if you find yourself in the midst of a storm today, what does it look like to see Jesus operating in these ways? The first thing it means is look to him. If you're in a storm, look to Jesus. Look to him in his word. Get people around you who can, who can help you see Jesus at the center of your circumstance. Draw near to him in communion with him in prayer. Second, surrender control of your life. The disciples are rowing hard. They're worn out. They're weary. Eight hours. It's hard. It's, it's brutal. And the minute Jesus steps on the boat, they're, they're, they reach their destination. Surrender control of your life. Stop trying to live life in the strength of your own competence and your own abilities. Give yourself to him. And finally, trust in his promises. Trust in the promises of the Lord. He has promised to deliver you to the other side of that storm. And here's the thing. This is, this is a hard truth. We may not get to that other side of that storm in this life. But you know what Revelation 21 says? The Apostle John, who's writing these words, gets a glimpse of heaven. And what does he say in Revelation 21? I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the former had passed away and I saw that the sea was no more. That's where all this is heading. In the new heavens and the new earth, the sea, that which represents all that's terrifying, all that's uncertain, it will be no more. And you need to, please understand this. Jesus is with you today in your storm. There has never been one moment in your life where God has been absent from you, where he has not been at work in your circumstances for his glory and for your 
good. There has not been one sleepless night. There has not been one tear that you have shed that he has not caught and treasured in his bottle. There is not one restless night that you have spent in a dark night of the soul where he has not held fast to you in love. There was a terrified leader in Israel years ago named Joshua who took over for Moses and was going to lead God's people. And God comes to Joshua and he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the writer of Hebrews takes that promise to Joshua and he applies it to all Christians. He says, he has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So in that moment, when you feel in your storm like you have been forsaken by God, remember that your Savior, Jesus Christ, was forsaken by God so that you would never be forsaken. On the cross, he gave what's called the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was forsaken by God so that you and I would never be forsaken by him. I have called thee, Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl, clouds may gather. All must work for good to me. Well, let me conclude. The disciples, it says after this, were glad to take Jesus into the boat. And I think they're glad not just because they've been rescued. They're glad because they've seen the glory of Jesus. Jesus sent them into the storm. He sent his disciples into the storm to form in them a faith that will endure. And this is very important, and here's why. The very next day, Jesus begins to teach and minister again. We're going to see this as we continue in John chapter 6. Jesus is going to say to the large crowds, the crowds that love to be fed by the miracle-working Jesus, he's going to look at them and he's going to say, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And what you would expect would happen is going to happen. Those crowds are going to look at each other and they're going to say, this is a hard saying. And they're going to disperse. They're going to leave Jesus behind. And as he's watching these crowds depart from him, Jesus is going to turn and he's going to look at the 12. And he's going to say to them in verse 67 of John chapter 6, are you going to go away as well? And Peter is going to speak on behalf of the disciples and he says, where else could we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Peter says, what, listen, why, why do the twelve stay when everyone else is going? Because Jesus got in the boat with them. Jesus, you, you revealed your glory. You moved toward us in love. You, you demonstrated your sovereign authority over the storm. You got in the boat with us. How could we fail to believe your words? Now, where else could we go, Lord? How can we not trust in your promise? How can we not believe that you are who you say you are, even when it's hard? We have four kids, and many of you know that we have two of our children through the grace of adoption. And when we adopted Eva and Titus four and a half years ago, they didn't speak any English at all except for the Sunday school songs that they learned in the orphanage. And one of the songs that they would sing as five- and three-year-olds, especially Eva would sing, the song was, With Jesus in the Boat, I Can Smile at the Storm. 
And you know the reason that we teach our children songs like that? Because for the terrified five-year-old girl in the orphanage, that hope is glorious enough. That truth is sturdy enough to carry her through her storm. And it is for you in your storm too.